Welcome to another episode of Neurotalk, the interview series for Stanford University's weekly neuroscience seminar brought to you by Neurit West. I'm Ada Yi, a neuroscience graduate student here at Stanford. Today, our guest is Tomomi Shimogori, team leader of the Lab for Molecular Mechanisms of Thalamus Development at Riken Brain Institute in Japan. We'll be speaking with her about cortical development, setting development in marmosets, and growing up around the globe. All this and more coming up. All right, so we're here today with Tomomi Shimogori, a faculty member at the Riken Brain Institute in Japan. Uh, thanks for speaking with us today, Professor Shimogori. Thanks for having me today. Great. So uh, usually we like to start by asking um, our interviewees uh, where they grew up um, and um, if they're interested in science as a kid. So maybe uh, you can tell us a little bit about that. Okay. Um, so I was born in Japan as Japanese, but I actually grew up in the United States. Oh, really? So, yeah. Because uh, my father had a business, just, you know, he had to fly a lot of different places. So one place we started from um, New Jersey when I was little. And then after that, after when I was five years old, we went back to Japan. And then after that, we went to Iraq, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> we stayed there for three years till the war start happens. <laughs> oh, wow. Were you in the capital in Baghdad? Or? Yeah, was, we were in Baghdad. Yeah. I see. I see. So that's you, you had a very... Um kind of international experience then. And interesting as well, right? People were really friendly, and then we, we also had Japanese schools, so all the educations were in Japanese, so everything was easy, yeah. Obviously, you traveled the world then quite a bit, but um, when you started college, you went back to Japan, as I understand it, right? So right, um, you went to the Hoshi Pharmaceutical College, um, which is actually a very old school. I was reading about it. Um, it was founded like over 100 years ago um, in yeah. order to train future pharmacists. Um, but it's kind of unique in that not only are they giving you professional training, but they actually have a heavy emphasis on drug research. So I was just mm -hmm. curious uh, what motivated you to go back to Japan after such an international experience. And also, um, were you already interested in doing research at that time? So the, while we were back in Japan, it's just basically, you know, all the family were back in Japan. So we just, you know, follow everyone. So I, um, I went to college um, in Japan. And the time when I decided to uh, had to decide which college to go. So, so in Japan, we have to really make decision what you want to be at 18 years old. So, like if you want to go to the medical school, you have to make a decision there when you go into college, right? So, um, when I had to make a decision, I wanted to get some kind of you know like a licensed um, uh, job. So then I thought that it would be easier to develop career as female in Japan. So, and then this, you know, my mom always, always um, telling me I should get some kind of licensed job, then the, the position will be secure. Why, why do you say it was not easy to keep a job? It used to be like, you know, female get married and then you get kids and then you usually quit the job. I see. So it was very, very difficult to develop your career as female in Japan. Um, now these days, you know, things have got changed a lot. So it's not like that anymore. So it's, you know, everything's are quite even. So it's easy to, you know, um, work or develop your career. But just, you know, long time ago, the system was not like that. Right. And maybe yeah. getting your, your certificate or your license would be more of an asset. Exactly. To be a licensed pharmacist, then mm -hmm. you can go back to your, you know, position anytime you want, because this is, you know. And at what time did you, at what point did you get interested in research then? Yeah, so that time when I was in um, college, I had no idea what the research looks like. But in, a, a, you know, as to be trained as a pharmacist, there are actually a lot of lab um, experience that I took there. Mm -hmm. So, and then one, you know, when we were doing a lot of lab experience, then I got interested in, like, you know, working at the bench side is quite interesting thing to do. Mm -hmm. So then it made me to think about, like, you know, um, I want to 
do a little bit more of these kind of things. So I decided to go to graduate school. Mm -hmm. And so for for graduate school, um, you you stayed in Japan. I think you went to Chiba University, and you were working with Kazui Igarashi. Um, and there you were studying the biology of uh, a molecule called a polyamine. So this is actually a class of molecules, um, organic compounds that have amines or nitrogen uh, groups in them. Um, and uh, since our audience is mostly neuroscientists, um, neuroscientists might be familiar with a particular polyamine, which is called spermine, um, that actually modulates NMDA receptor transmission. But you weren't really necessarily doing neuroscience at the time. Um, in your case, you're actually studying the role of uh, polyamines in protein synthesis. So maybe can you tell us uh, how you ended up in this lab? We you're already interested in research at this point, but mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I was interested in research, especially I wanted to work something um, related to disease. Um, yeah, so because, you know, um, you have background in um, pharmacy, um, then you want to treat or you want to cure people or, you know, um, suffering from any kind of thing. So then I got interested in, like, any kind of research which related to disease. And this lab, um, before they started this on um, polyamine and NMDA receptors, they were mainly focusing on cancer biology. So that's the main reason why I chose this lab and decided to go to this lab. And um, so polyamines are actually basically um, found from um, cancer patients' urine. Oh, really? Yes, that's that's the reason why this is well known. Um, um, amines, uh, which increase uh, cell growth. Oh, I see. Yeah, I was going to ask you. So later on, after you did some very mechanistic work, kind of showing that uh, one of the polyamines, spermidine. Uh, directly regulates uh, a known regulator of protein synthesis. You actually had a paper that showed that overexpression of this protein uh, could transform cells, but basically make them malignant. And so I was going to ask exactly. if that was actually a surprising result, but you're telling me that people already had a hint based on patient data. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So at that time, you know, of course, we were, we were supposed to focus on polyamines, and then most of the people were focusing on transcription regulation and uh, by uh, controlled by polyamines and you know which make um, uh, cells to transform um, molecular transformation. But um, since the lab was pretty big and there were so many people, and you know, basically we wanted we had to head to a little bit different directions. So I was actually the one who was told to do some translation initiation um, control in uh, um, cancer um, cells. So that that was the beginning, and then yeah so. I actually, you know, I was looking for like how polyamines can control translation initiation. Um, we found some clue, but at the time when I was looking, you know, other molecules which can be controlled by polyamines, these translation initiation factors actually came along and then which seems to be having a very important role. So that's how, that's how I started focusing in the, on these um, molecules. I see. That's really interesting. Um, and then kind of skipping ahead uh, from your graduate work to your postdoc, um, <laughs> For, for your postdoc, you actually came back to the United States, um, and this is kind of when you got into neuroscience. So you went right. to Chicago to study forebrain development with Elizabeth Grove. Um, yes. So what was the transition there? What made you decide to go from kind of this more biochemical, also kind of cancer-related research? I know. It's, it's, it's yeah. very different transformation. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. So actually, I have to go back to my graduate um, you know, part a little bit. So, uh -huh. so, when, so this, when I was at graduate school, I was working on translation initiation. But at that time, you know, people started to notice that the polyamines have something to do with NMDA receptor gating. Mm -hmm. And then, so, you know, some like other graduate students start working on this project. Um, but um, we had to learn how to work on this, you know, thing like it, the, technically it was very different. Mm. So like you have to, you had to, this, these, <laughs> these days, it's really old days. Mm -hmm. We had to use um, Xenopus oocyte uh -huh. and inject mRNA mm -hmm. and do voltage clamp and those kind of, you know, 
<laughs> this is how we used to do. But um, these technique, we didn't have this technique in the lab, so someone had to go and learn. Mm-hmm. So um, what we did is we actually invited a professor from the um, United States, and then we were you know, asking this uh, professor to teach us how to do this. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I was the only one actually who could speak you know, um, English. Right. <laughs> right, based on your background. <laughs> yeah. English level. <laughs> yeah. So I was told to learn all the technique from him. I see. So, yeah, but then, then you know, I started, you know, um, working on all sides, yeah. and you know, also I, I had to, you know, um, keep all the uh, colony. I mean, uh, I don't know how do you call it colony or not, but all the frogs and facilities. So like changing waters and feeding them and those kind of thing. Uh, we only had female that time, but I secretly got male, and then make, they made them to fertilize, and then I was watching how um, those oocytes change their shape after they get fertilized. I see. And that was really fascinating. So I that see. was the beginning I got interested in development of biology. I see. That's really interesting. If you see how the, the morphologies are changing quite yeah. dynamically, it's really, really fascinating. And, you know, I was only working on culture, um, like as cells which are culture, which kind of, you know, move around, but not dynamically. They were still the same, you know, cells which just keep dividing. But in the developmental phase, they are not only dividing, they also differentiate. So they changed their cell fate, which is just, you know, something which i never seen before. So I got so interested in. That's true. If you look at a, like a video of, a, of usually the embryogenesis and the, right, 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 those yeah. are really like a timeless video of those types exactly, of things. Very yeah. beautiful, I, very captivating. I always use that movie in my lecture. Yeah. <laughs> it could be very dramatic. Um, all right. So I guess that's what prompted you to join uh, the Grove Lab. Um, and I was going to ask if it was a big change to come back to the United States. Um, but I mean, it sounds like you're already pretty familiar with the landscape at that mm-hmm. point. Yeah, but still, you know, I did all the education pretty much in Japan, like mm-hmm. um, high school and um, graduate to graduate school. So it's already more than 10 years, right? Mm-hmm. So it was it was very different. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I still could understand what people are talking about, but it was very different. And also the, the lab, which I joined, mm-hmm. the field was completely different from my, what I used to do, right? Mm-hmm. So all the words um, were different, so I couldn't understand a lot of words. Mm-hmm. I had to go back and, you know, pull out the textbook and start reading them all in English to, to be able to understand because mm-hmm. I never had those kind of education. The, the science education. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Mm. So it was, it was a new world for me, but it was very exciting. Yeah. And scientifically in that lab, you tackled the question of how uh, patterning of the cortex occurs mm-hmm. during development. Um, and so I guess for our audience, the cortex is kind of fascinating um, in part because it has these different domains or modules. Often we think of the different sensory domains. So there's somatosensory cortex, visual cortex, different areas. Um, But how it was developed, I guess, was a big question at the time. So um, in your big paper from that period, you you talk about something called the protomap model. Maybe can you briefly uh, just summarize for us what, what was that model and what were people thinking? So this time, though, there are two hypotheses how the um, cortical area map is developed. Mm-hmm. One is protocortex, one the other is protomap. Mm-hmm. So one is basically, um, you know, the hypothesis is um, the older map is already um, um, decided mm-hmm. or defined when they are differentiating at the ventricular zone. So the somatosensory cortex is already somatosensory cortex be- mm-hmm. before they um, receive input from the som- any somatosensory um, domain. Mm-hmm. On the other, the other hand, um, uh, the other hypothesis is basically so all the areas are not defined at the time when they reach to their final position, but they become like let's say visual cortex when they start receiving input from the retina. 
mm -hmm. for instance, or the input from the eyes, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, you know, which is first? They, they know what they are going to be first and they receive those information or they become this region because they, re they receive this specific input from peripheral. So those are two hypotheses we had at that time. Mm -hmm. Does the second model in some way suggest that there's going to be somewhat more flexibility? So in theory, we would see more variability in the final adult, or is that not necessarily correct understanding? So why, why we had to discuss like in this way is because, um, for, especially for mouse, uh, we didn't know that which area become what at mm -hmm. early post, till early postnatal stage. Mm -hmm. So like, you know, after they are born, still the cortex is becoming um, mature, right? So mm -hmm. all the neurons are still not there. They're still migrating to their final position. And so it was very difficult to define which area is what. So people had to start for looking for the molecular markers, which tells you which area you're looking at. Mm -hmm. okay. So when the, then they, people start to um, understand, like, okay, this area becomes this at the early stage. But still then, you know, it was very difficult to figure out whether this area is, you know, functioning as a, let's say, somatosensory cortex or not. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason why it was very difficult to figure out which one is first. Like, you know, the cell identity comes first or um, when they start to receive input, they get their identity or not. And so talking about molecular players, mm -hmm. uh, so that's kind of what you went after. So mm -hmm. um, you, your big finding was basically that uh, FGF8 was a key regulator of these, mm -hmm. uh, this cortical development and mapping out or defining what areas became what. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just a really neat paper. There's this one figure that I really like. Um, so basically the project was to, to uh, express FGF8 ectopically, so in places where it's not normally expressed, um, and see, you would see shifts in the map. And in fact, when you put an extra source of FGF8, you were actually able to induce an extra set of what we call the whisker barrels. So it's this very right. the visible map of the, where the whiskers um, go and, and put inputs into the mm -hmm. cortex. Um, so at this point, what previous work had made FGF8 a good candidate to study as something that kind of defines the map? Okay, so um, I have to start with like a history of electroporation in that case. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, so you, you already heard like, you know, I have a background of um, cancer biologists. So in those mm -hmm. times, you know, the, most of the um, technique people are using is increase um, gene expression or reduce some specific gene expression using like um, transfection technique, right? And then when you um, start working on the whole embryo, which means like more numbers of cells, more different types of cells, right? And also they are not accessible because they are not in plates. It just, you know, start making me, are there any way that I can ectopically um, uh, induce gene expression or reduce gene expression, mm -hmm. just like I, how I used to, you know, do in a cancer biology lab. Mm -hmm. And then... Um, those days, you know, um, people are making knockout animal or transgenic animal to mm -hmm. make it able to um, induce ectopic gene expression or reduce gene expression. Mm -hmm. But most of these um, molecules which we're interested in, so-called morphogens, um, um, cause lethality. So they, you know, kill the embryo at like a lot younger age, a lot earlier age. So that's the reason why we couldn't, you know, um, use this technique. So I was just keep thinking, are there any other way to just transfer these, you know, cells which are still in the uterus to, you know, make them able to um, start expressing um, different genes which are usually not there. Mm -hmm. And then I actually spent almost two years to develop this technique, in uterine electroporation. Right. It's supposed to be a very tricky technique. Yeah. So first, you know, you just look at the um, uterus 
it's really hard to imagine how you can access to embryo which is right. inside <laughs> yeah so i was like hmm <laughs> and i just put them back and then you had to go back and think about how to do it but yeah it, it was that was the beginning was there a breakthrough moment when you kind of figured oh yeah out definitely yeah. and uh, we were very lucky our um, neighbor lab cliff ragenstiel's lab was also working on similar thing but they were using chick embryo right for a chick they were actually a little bit easier because you know um if you crack the shell the embryos are accessible they're still mm -hmm. there but still mm -hmm. they're having lots of problems but they actually made it to, you know to work so mm -hmm. that was actually a very very encouraging moment for us mm -hmm. so and um you know i learned a lot from their lab and you know um, looking there how they make their um capillary or what the kind of electrodes you're using you know i just mm -hmm learn a lot um, from them but of course it was not exactly the same to adopt this technique to mouse you know embryo mm -hmm. so then i start making my own electrodes mm -hmm. um you know a lot of different things but mm -hmm. it's just every week it was very depressing because you have to you know, keep <laughs> doing without any result but yeah. just one day it just started working and <laughs> it was just you know it's just really we found it's a really great and so that kind of gave you a, a really precise control of the position of the ectopic fgf8 that you were expressing right right right, right without killing the embryo. This is, yeah. this was a very big thing, yeah. And do you think, because these days a lot of people uh, really favor these genetic Cree drivers as ways of selectively overexpressing certain genes to find out what they do. Um, do you think microelectroporation, what, what's the main advantage of that or disadvantage? It's, it's really fast. So, you know, um, if you have uh, an interest of gene that you have, you know, and then just make construct or just put the promoter, which work for um, mouse cells, right? Mm -hmm. And you can just like a break. Mm -hmm. So it's just, you know, the time consuming part is probably making the construct, which is not that much time consuming, right? So you don't have to wait. Um. And so anyway, back to my previous question. So we were talking about why FGF8 was a really interesting factor to study. Yeah, so um, we were already interested in morphogen, that was for sure, because mm -hmm. um, the lab which I joined, Elizabeth Sprobel lab, was working on the WIND uh, 3A function um, in the cortical development, mm -hmm. which is also one of the morphogens. So we started electroporating every single morphogen we could think about. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of them, um, I mean, it was actually great because I told you like it was very easy. Every week you can electroporate different molecules, so right. that was good. But uh, so the speed came in handy then. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah, I can't remember how many different types of morphogen I electroporated that time. Uh -huh. um, it was actually fun. Some of them made the brain bigger. Uh -huh. <laughs> Some of them made the brain smaller. Uh -huh. It was a really dramatic, you know, phenotype, right? But uh -huh. if you um, look at just the size, I mean, it's it's smaller, it's bigger. That's obvious. But our question is, you know, the cortical area map. Uh -huh. Even the brain is bigger or smaller, all the areas are there. Uh -huh. But, you know, we checked it with gene expression, but oh, everything is still there. Mm -hmm. So that was not the question we wanted to ask, right? I mean, right? We wanted to know what is controlling the cortical area map. So we were looking for something which changes gene expression. And something that actually changes the identity exactly, of different Exactly, yes, yeah. Then, after, you know, trying all winds, BMP, sonic hedgehog, mm -hmm. we came to FGF. Mm -hmm. And then FGF8 was actually interesting. When you electroporate it, it didn't change the size at all. Right. So at first I thought that, oh, it's not doing anything. But mm -hmm. the, you know, the surprise come after you do in situ hybridization was checking um, the vertical area map. Mm -hmm. They dramatically change the mm -hmm. pattern. And so in that figure where you have two, a double barrel cortex, did that actually take over some of the territory of, say, visual cortex or another area? 
Yeah, so this is interesting. Actually, it doesn't take over everything because if you look, you know, this duplicated barrel cortex, um, if you look carefully in between these two um, barrels, mm -hmm. you can still see the visual cortex sitting in between. I them. see. Huh. So they change the location, but they still keep everything intact. It, and maybe shifted or morphed a little exactly. bit. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I see. Got you. Um, so that was obviously very crucial work for the field. Um, and um, after you're done with that work, um, I guess you moved back to Japan, and now you have your own lab there, um, where you've moved away from studying the telencephalon, which is the area that uh, gives rise to the uh, cortex during development, to the development of two structures derived from the diencephalon. So this includes mm -hmm. the hypothalamus and the yeah. thalamus. Mm -hmm. um, so starting with the thalamus, so in some way it might be kind of intuitive that you're studying this. This is kind of the area that gives rise to the afferents that then target different areas, corresponding areas of the cortex. Um, but are there any particular challenges in studying the thalamus, or why did you think that this would be a particularly uh, interesting problem to tackle? Yeah, so um, I'm so glad that you brought up the, the, the topic protocortex mm -hmm. and protomap before. Mm -hmm. So um, basically my work in, um, when I was in Chicago, it shows like, you know, protomap so is, you know, the way that how um, the cortical area map is um, um, developed because all that it is controlled genetically. So mm -hmm. the cortical area already know which area they're going to be before they start receiving input, right? That's mm -hmm. the basically found finding from this FTFA electroporation. Yeah. But, um, but still, you know, when you look at those duplicates, um, um, barrel cortex, let's say, they still, you know, get input and they make these, you know, um, barrel pattern, these patchy whisker mm. patterns, right? right? But we still don't know what is controlling those patterns. Mm -hmm. And then it comes, you know, it goes like, you know, it should be some kind of input coming from thalamus, which is controlling those patterns. Mm -hmm. So this is actually the, uh, basically the idea is proto-cortex, um, which the, you know, input afferent controls the pattern as well. Mm -hmm. So this, you know, um, I got interested in this. Now, you know, the, the, it's not like all the genetic control, um, which is the making the cortical area map to define the different areas, but also the afferent from thalamus is controlling cortical area. Sorry, so just to clarify, so you're saying mm -hmm. that within, like, somatosensory cortex, for example, so yes, mm -hmm. we've defined that entire area within the, the cortex, you know, mm -hmm. with, say, FGF8 and other factors that might come after FGF8, but, you know, how do we define even sub-areas within that type of mm -hmm. cortex? And you're yes. thinking that that might actually, so whereas before the protomap uh, model kind of held for broad cortex, de cortical development, mm -hmm. something more detailed, and perhaps something that's the second model might right. hold for sub-areas. That, that, yeah, that's how I got interested in thalamus. So mm -hmm. then if you look, you know, um, what is the, the mechanism which is controlling the thalamus development or diencephalon development, there are actually not that many papers at that mm -hmm. time. Right. So the field was not, you know, mature mm -hmm. when I, you know, came back to Japan and started having my lab. So that's the reason why I decided I have to start in thalamus first before mm -hmm. I go and then see, you know, how the thalamus is controlling cortex development. Mm -hmm. And, and why do you think there are so few papers on this topic? Is just people weren't there yet, or is there some challenges? Yeah, people are not there yet, and but at the same time, thalamus is such a deep um, brain structure, right. so it was very difficult to access there. Yeah. That was one of the major reasons there are no, there are not many people working in the, that field. Sure, sure. Um, and another deep structure that you're studying, probably with very similar challenges, is the hypothalamus. Yeah. Um, and something I was reading from your website, this is really interesting. You say that its development is actually triggered by maternal separation, um, and also that, for example, it can, the development can actually be um, uh, affected by things such as manipulating the litter size, which then could affect the development. Can you tell us a little bit about 
this? Yeah, so in this case, you know, so it's not it's not really the, the basic development, not like um, patenting, but I think, it, you know, the, the early life experience changed their behavior. So mm-hmm. it changed more their um, the connectivity, for instance, mm-hmm. rather than the basic patenting, like we were talking about the cortex patent. I see. Yeah. And it's just an interesting area of development because, you know, with the cortex, we often think about plasticity in terms of being induced by lack of sensory input or, you know, having sensory input. But in this mm-hmm. case, we were talking about other factors that people talk about with human development, such as starvation, mm-hmm. perhaps, or maternal care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you think it'll be difficult to study patterning at all? Or is there any kind of patterning in the hypothalamus that might be reminiscent of what you saw in the cortex? Or is it going to be a pretty different beast? Um, actually, I don't know about that part, because this is also the field which is re- re- was very difficult to understand. So the, again, one of the reasons it was very difficult to work in hypothalamus and thalamus is um, because it's you know like I said it's a deep brain structure and also we didn't have that many um like uh, area markers mm-hmm. that we can define which area we are looking at because um, unlike cortex these structures are um, having these little um, clusters of cells called nuclei so it's not laminated and these you know nuclei are in three D structures so it's very difficult to tell which you know structure exactly you're looking at or target specific you know um, um, nuclei. I see. So that's the reason why we thought that we have to start looking for um, like a gene finding gene markers, uh, which is specifically expressing at a specific you know area, right. at a specific time point. Then we can start generating like pre line and those kind of things. Mm-hmm. And finally, another area that you're working on in your lab is uh, kind of looking more across evolution at other uh, animals besides rodents and mice. Mm-hmm. Um, so can you tell us about your use of marmosets to study mm-hmm. uh, development? Okay. So um, why I started, you know, um, using marmoset is actually one of the questions. It's just because, you know, um, we had a um, colony in our institute. So it was mm-hmm. <laughs> very, you know, um, close by, which yeah. is really good. Yeah. And But um, at the same time, you know, um, when we were uh, looking at all these gene expression, so, you know, in rodents, uh-huh. simply, you know, we started looking at the same genes, you know, how the same genes are expressed in different animals. Uh-huh. because. If you um, look at the cortex, you know, um, like a cortical area map, uh, definitely like a primates have more numbers. I mean, the size why the brains are a lot bigger, but it's uh-huh. just not each size gets bigger. They also add new areas in uh, cortical area maps, right? Uh-huh. So to finding those areas, I thought that, you know, are there any um, like a gene marker that we can easily use and see, you know, um, how new areas, uh, we can identify new areas or different areas from rodents mm-hmm. and primates. Right. Mm-hmm. So I use a lot of, you know, cortical area markers um, and then look at their gene expression in um, marmoset brain. Mm-hmm. That was the beginning. And what we found is um, lots of, you know, some of the sen- um, mouse somatosensory marker genes were expressed in primate um, visual cortex. Really? Interesting. Yeah. So that's then, then, you know, we got interested in like how, you know, these, you know, different gene expressions are, um, you know, contributing to their function. Or mm-hmm. what? It, what basically? What are they doing in mouse somatosensory cortex and primate visual cortex? Right. So it's almost as if this domain that I mean, we think of primates as being very heavily visual over exactly. evolution. This area yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, so I will talk about these kind of thing in my okay. talk. So. Okay. All right, <laughs> excellent. That was going to be my next question. If you could maybe just uh, close by giving us a quick preview of your talk, actually. Okay. Yeah. So I'm still interested in like you know cortex and thalamus development, especially like an area um, definite uh, uh, patterning. Mm -hmm. And then um, this time I would like to you know um, show our recent work, like how these molecules and specifically expressions um, mouse somatosensory cortex is controlling. Um, their pattern, I mean, a dendritic patterning, which mm -hmm. is also important to make the barrel feel, which look like a barrel feel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and then also at the same time, like I just said, we found this molecule is expressed in a uh, um, uh, marmoset visual cortex. Mm -hmm. So using, you know, a mouse somatosensory model, we can predict what this uh, the function of this molecule is, right? Mm -hmm. And now we are bringing this idea um, to adapt into primate visual cortex to understand what these molecules are doing in primate visual cortex. All right, great. Well, we definitely look forward to hearing about that. Thank you. Um, so usually uh, I, we close the interview with a few uh, what we call rapid-fire questions. So these are mm -hmm. meant to be fun. So if you can just uh, answer with whatever's um, on the top of your head, um, okay. that would be great. All right, so the first question. Uh, if you could go back in time and speak to yourself, Tomomi, as a student, what advice would you give yourself? Uh, keep doing what you want to do. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Number two, uh, can you name one thing you missed most about Japan when you're in the U.S., or one thing you missed most about the U.S. now that you're in Japan, or I guess since you actually lived in Iraq, maybe even something that you found uh, was unique to Iraq? <laughs> what I miss um, about Japan when I was in the United States, um, basically food. Yeah. <laughs> still could get lots of good food in the United States, but typical yeah. Japanese food. Yeah. Um, what Now what I miss... Uh, um, this moment I miss all of my friends in the United States mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and Iraq I don't know um when I was very little mm -hmm. it was a lot of fun yeah. I can't remember what kind of you know my all my friends <laughs> at that time but yeah um but I think I miss my dog do you have a dog now no no, no. I can't because yeah. the apartment right now is really small, small. in Japan so. yeah <laughs> all right well, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Thank you very much. And thank you all for listening. We hope you'll join us next week when our guest will be Rick Huguenier, professor and director of the Department of Neuroscience at Johns Hopkins University. Neurotalk is a production of Neurite West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by David Lipton, Luis Jiang, Eddie Alberon, Andrew Gundren, Jordan Sorokin, Sharon Liu, and myself, Ada Yi. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show, Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. You can also follow Neurite West on Twitter using our handle, at Stanford Neuro. This is Neurotalk, and I'm meeting you.